Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast, your initiation into the ways of the square to resurrect the wretch and pee on the all-seeing pyramid of Illuminati enlightenment. And now, here's your host, Mr. Michael Joseph. Welcome to the Proud to be Profane podcast. Welcome to episode number 28. And today we have a fun one for all of you esoteric-minded folk out there. For those who are interested in secret societies and their impact on world history. And we will be specifically focusing on the time during the Renaissance up until the Enlightenment. Roughly 1400 to 1800 because there's a lot of hidden stuff that most people tend to downplay or not really put much focus on, but perhaps these things are much more of a driving factor than we would imagine. And is that by design? And so we're going to talk about the relationship of Kabbalah with a K being transmuted to Kabbalah with a C. And then sometimes we use Kabbalah with a Q as sort of a general reference to occultism and perhaps a more universal understanding of it. But we will focus more on the Kabbalah with a K creating or helping to enable the Kabbalah with a C and talk about the Jewish Kabbalists who have their own secret society of sorts and the one thing that brought them together in perfect harmony with the Christian empire was their love of esoteric wisdom. And in turn, this brought about illumination for all of Europe through the Enlightenment. Now, we've talked about how the Enlightenment folk like to downplay all of that esoteric stuff and focus mostly on Voltaire and D'Alembert and all of those rationalist people who didn't believe in anything superstitious. However, we've gone through Barwell's memoirs, demonstrating a lot of strange Masonic lingo and rhetoric coming from these quote-unquote conspirators, such as the idea of illuminating all of the masses into the mysteries of Mithras and using Julian the Apostate as the grand example or inspiration. Yet he was tied to all of this Neoplatonic magic, so that seems to conflict with the superstition attached to those sorts of ideas. But it all seems to be very pragmatic when you're attacking Old World Christendom, and anything goes. And is that kind of the point of having the exoteric doctrine being quite different than the esoteric version? Welcome to episode number 28, and today we're going to talk about an interesting book called The Age of Secrecy, and summarize what it generally reveals in regards to the Jews, Christians, and the economy of secrets from roughly the years 1400 through 1800. And the author of this book is Daniel Yuta, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but Regardless, he did a very great job at sourcing a lot of material for the book itself has almost a hundred pages of notes and citations, and that's quite a bit for being a 400-page book. So it's about a quarter citations and probably about a third of the citations combined with the bibliography and all of the reference material. And a little bit of a personal story as to how I obtained a copy. I was perusing through the thrift store where I used to live, which unfortunately is closed now, but they had many, many books at very cheap prices. And I found this one for just a few bucks. And I thought it was very interesting, and it turned out to be one of the most relevant books to all of the things that we've been discussing on the Schism 206 channel in relationship to occult, masonry, secrets, Kabbalah, etc., and also the content from occult Catholicism. And a couple more things to add to our little preface here is that Mr. Utah does a very good job of navigating the controversies that always arise whenever you are dealing with these topics 
of Judaism throughout the Middle Ages up until the Enlightenment and all of the sensitive stuff that goes with that. And so I would applaud him for being able to be really objective about all the information and not getting overly philo-Semitic, but also not going into blaming any side for the particular conflicts of Judaism and Christianity, and not coloring it, so to speak, as many people in academia do, where they try to subtly insert allusions to the Christians being superstitious and backwards, and the Jews being entirely victims without having ever done anything wrong. We want to approach things in a bit more of a balanced way to know that it is a two-way street when you have these struggles, and there is a lot more going on hidden beneath the surface, and that's what I think this book does such a great job of. It's all about the esoteric world rather than the exoteric academic understanding of this time, and he makes an important distinction in the beginning to clarify that a lot of modern academia has completely neglected these esoteric elements of which he will be revealing. So that's kind of par for the course in terms of how we look at things where most often the hidden history is neglected and the influence of secret societies and occult magic, Kabbalah, whether you want to take it to be a perception deception in terms of magic and simply giving a natural explanation to particular phenomenon tied to these subjects, or giving a supernatural flair where you are actually attempting to invoke supernatural entities, be them angelic or demonic. And then, of course, with that, you would have the problem of claiming you're invoking angelic things, but in reality, what are you actually letting into your personal world and attaching yourself to. How do you really know? So those are all things you can figure out on your own, debate on your own. We're just going to talk about what the book reveals and apply it to a lot of the things that we've been over in the Schism 206 content, be it old YouTube material or current members section material at the Rockstar Esoterica website. And we will see what we can extract from all of this that will be relevant. So to sum up some major themes that we will find reoccurring throughout this book, one of them is interesting that there is this mystique around the Jews coming from the Christian culture where they think they are tied to esoteric secrets of nature and they have this sort of hidden magic or understanding about the world that is very attractive to some of these quote-unquote occult seekers. And Mr. Yuta makes the point that whether this was real or imaginary, this was the perception of the Christians looking at the Jews. There's something secretive about them. Now, there might be something to it, as we shall see, but can the imagination run a little wild and also perhaps make a bigger deal out of certain information than perhaps should be. So the fundamental point is that regardless of the perception, these esoteric Jews did act like a secret society. It's very similar to esoteric Freemasonry, but not all Jews were engaging in this. But the ones that did were the ones who got into the aristocracy. They got little perks or benefits from the Christian nobility that were receptive to their esoteric knowledge. Now, certain Christian nobility were warning against this and they would not allow them into their courts. And these are mostly the policies of the papal states and the papacy itself warning about Jewish mysticism. But particular rulers did not heed those warnings whatsoever, like Emperor Rudolf II, who is a very prominent figure in this. And in another podcast episode in the future, we will talk about the relationship of John Dee to everything we'll be going through here. And it's all during this basic time period of the 16th century that this stuff is really ramping up. And Rudolf II will be very important to John Dee and his quote-unquote angelic mission. So that podcast episode will be kind of like a complimentary one or a mirror or a sister episode to this one. 
Now, in terms of the geography of activity with all of these esoteric secrets and the Jews being the traitors of them, well, it seems to be a phenomenon that's tied to both Ashkenazi areas and Sephardic Jews. So I wouldn't say it leans more towards one or the other. It's kind of hard to tell. But there is a predominance of it in Italy, in particular Venice, and also moving up into the Ashkenazi territory in areas of Prussia and also the Habsburg rule, like in Prague. There's also a lot of overlap into the Ottoman Empire, and this seems to be the general area where all of this stuff is happening. There is some overlap of this into Spain and northern Italy in general, and that's more of the Sephardic area. And we know that the Sephardic Jews got expelled from Spain in 1492. We know there might be some converso carryover with some not-so-sincere conversions that might be helping to funnel some of this and this economy of secrets. But generally speaking, those are the areas. Northern Italy, up into the Ashkenazi territories, maybe a little bit over into the Dutch lowland territories, and again, the Ottoman Empire. Now, as for the cities where most of this activity takes place in, you will find the city of Venice, the city of Prague, and the city of Constantinople, and a number of cities in northern Italy, and specifically Mantua. And a lot of this is the Lombardy area, and if you recall, in our Cathars discussion, well, surprise, surprise, that's where a lot of them fled after the Crusades, and we talked about the Jews aiding and abetting the Cathar heresy, and this is admitted by Israeli or Jewish historians themselves. So there's no need to go into conspiracy theories, this is just in the Jewish history books on the issue. And surprise, surprise, one place you will not find a lot of this activity is in France, and there is a lack of it in Spain, despite a few overlaps here and there. And of course, surprise, surprise, that is where they dealt with the Cathar heresy in the Albigensian Crusade, and they purged it from that area, and then they dealt with the Converso Crisis, and then they instituted the Inquisition, and we had the Franciscans and the Dominicans and then later on, the Jesuits, despite some muddiness going on there that we discussed in the Ignatius of Loyola episode. So looking at the repercussions of that decades to centuries later, we find much less activity of this esoteric Judaism and Kabbalah going on behind the scenes in those areas that took care of the Cathar problem or some of the false conversions and then we have the areas surrounding Rome that have a lot more restrictions on these issues surrounding esoteric Judaism. But in the northern areas where a lot of those Cathars fled, you see all of this activity going on. And then that is connecting to, again, Constantinople area and then up into Germany and especially Prague. Now, there are mentions of London and more in specific areas of Germany that are tied to Protestantism, but that tends to develop more once the Enlightenment or Freemasonry starts spreading in the 18th and 19th century. So it's interesting the transition, how a lot of this goes over into London, whereas before the Jews were not seen as very welcome in Britain for quite a while. So it's interesting that with the rise of Freemasonry, that changes quite a bit. But going back to the Cathar heresy and the Gnostic dualism that was present, we see that in the Byzantine Empire area in Constantinople, this is where a lot of this activity is going on and allowed to go on. And we can relate this back to the Fourth Crusade and some of the weirdness happening with that, where that particular crusade went rogue. And we have those areas of Venice and Constantinople having this esoteric Kabbalah going back and forth between it. Whereas, like we talked about, the crusade that did what it was supposed to and took care of the Cathar heresy, which, again, was just about 8-10 years after the Fourth Crusade, well, we noticed that there's not a whole lot of this activity going on here. So, does that reflect the effectiveness of that crusade and then them transitioning into the Inquisition because, obviously, the Crusades despite being effective, were pretty brutal and 
had a lot of collateral damage. So that's the reason they created the Inquisition in order to target specific individuals and it would be much more efficient and it would be much less likely to damage innocent people in the process. So there's a development here, there's a progress, despite everybody talking about those things being part of the Dark Ages and these backwards institutions. However, who is the one telling you that, and do they just want to be able to operate carte blanche internationally behind the scenes without those regulations in order to get into power and become the new oligarchy themselves? And obviously one of the best examples of that is the French Revolution and everything that we've been studying in Barwell's memoirs in the members section. So be it the Protestants, the Masons, or the Jews in terms of their influence and power on a macro scale, those are all the things that are kept in check in Catholic countries by the Inquisition and being a bit more defensive about the faith and not so tolerant, so to speak, but we know that intolerance and bigotry are the worst sins anybody could ever partake in in this modern world. But how do you define those terms? That becomes what's important. So with all that being said, that really summarizes the activity and the shifting of it and the transitioning of it in this age of secrecy. And so speaking of secrecy, what was so secret? What were all of these things going on behind the scenes that were being traded in this economy of secrets, as Utah puts it? So let's summarize them here, and we'll find that probably a lot of this is still relevant today. So one of them was alchemical secrets, occult knowledge, esoteric wisdom. Another was medicine. Another was partaking in espionage, right? Spying and having intelligence, sort of like... CIA or Mossad or KGB, right? The sphere of intelligentsia. There was also cryptography, so hiding things in code. And there was also trading in technological secrets and keeping patents, stuff like that, on the DL and not allowing your competition to get a leg up in terms of the realm of science, innovation, and technology. And then finally, there was sort of a new age or alternative version of a lot of these things and dealing with selling basically new age fraud to people. And one of these centered around the trade in unicorn horns. And so you could probably relate this to things that we talked about with the Oregon pyramids and all that kind of stuff that, you know, people have a little bit of suspicion about their efficacy it reminds me of the Seinfeld episode where George goes to the alternative healer and he's placed under some sort of crude pyramid structure and he's given some magical tea that turns him into an eggplant color. And then he starts screaming, I'm an eggplant! And then he's rushed to the hospital. So there's kind of a primitive new age fraud trafficking going on during this time that I found very interesting and relative to today with a lot of stuff going on in the alt media that relates to this esoteric wisdom and Kabbalah. And so, yes, we can draw many parallels and interests into what's discussed in the alt media with all this alchemy, alternative medicine, espionage, secret societies, CIA, Mossad, cryptocurrency, all of this hidden tech. This was all going on way back in the day. And perhaps there's nothing new under the sun other than their difference in their micro-manifestations of these macro-concepts. Now, another theme you will find tied to these esoteric Jews is the background in mercantilism and banking that tends to be predominant amongst them. And this reminds us of the claims of the historian Norman A. Cantor, who was talking about how the 5% rabbinical elite who had access to the Kabbalah and intermarried within their own circles to preserve it and not give it to the lower-level Jews, well, they happened to be the ones who were tied to mercantilism and this capitalist banking mentality. And speaking of which, I think it's worth revisiting the book and the quote itself on this from Cantor's In the Wake of the Plague, 
I do believe we read this during the Cathars episode, but it's so interesting, I think it's worth reiterating here. So from page 151 of the New York Times bestseller In the Wake of the Plague, it states, The rabbinical and capitalist elite in the Jewish communities, about 5% of Jewish families, had furthermore come to abandon the Aristotelian rationalism of Maimonides and instead embraced an esoteric theosophy called Kabbalah, which originated in the Hellenistic Eastern Mediterranean during the first century AD. We know that's tied to a lot of the Gnostic occultism that the Freemasons and theosophists so often romanticize about. Continuing, the Kabbalah intensified its mystical and astrological contents over time, its masters generating an air of mystery about themselves. Ordinary Jews were excluded from study of the Kabbalah. It's very important. Only rabbinical families intermarried with the mercantile and banking elite were given access to it. Also very important. And of course, the Christians might well suspect that amongst the hermeneutic secrets of the Kabbalah were arcane recipes for magic and poisons and spells, and that the Kabbalah constituted a kind of black magic. But of course, that's just silly, superstitious Christians. They don't understand this deep, esoteric wisdom like these Kabbalists do. Usually, that's the explanation given. And of course, the Cathar overlap where he states, there is no doubt that there was a doctrinal overlap between the Kabbalah and the dualist Christian Catharist heresy in southern France, which so frightened and horrified the church leaders in the early 13th century until the Cathars were suppressed by papal authorized force. So it seems interesting to me, in light of those revelations from Mr. Cantor, that most of these people in Utah's book will be tied to banking and mercantilism along with all of their esoteric secrets. And in turn, those are the ones who get into favor with the aristocracy and nobility. Thus, they are in the elite factions of Christian society and they are considering themselves elite Jews. So I find that parallel interesting as well. And another interesting revelation in this book is that the focus on secrecy and the idea of God being hidden on some level, like a lot of this occult hermeticism deems, well, it really developed during the Renaissance time when the Kabbalah for Christians started coming in and we had the Kabbalah with a K becoming Kabbalah with a C. Now, before this, the rulers thought God was more revealed in the Middle Ages or High Middle Ages and the idea of hidden agendas attached to governments was not really present. And is there a reason for that? Were perhaps the rulers and nobility a bit more forthcoming about their intentions and plans, i.e. more noble about things and being upfront about the issues? And then as this Kabbalah starts being interwoven with the Neoplatonism coming into the European nobility from Constantinople and the fall of Byzantium, and then we also have these Jews who are helping to promote it. Is that very similar to the Cathar heresy, which came from Byzantium, and we have the Jews in southern France helping to promote that? So is there a connection here, and is this tied to the idea of the Gollum as well, which comes out of this time period, particularly from a rabbi in Prague? So the point is, is this just the reincarnation 2.0, of a lot of this mysticism coming out of Byzantium and Constantinople, but instead now the Ottoman Turks have taken over and turned the old Hagia Sophia into a mosque, and there's a weird connection here with all of this esoteric activity that we mentioned being tied to these areas. Something to think about. So again, the idea of divine rulership concealing future agendas for the elites was not present in the Middle Ages and the High Middle Ages, according to Mr. Yuta, and it really started with the Renaissance and Enlightenment. So this is the opposite of what one might think, whereas in the Enlightenment, everybody's equal, right? We all have a share in this. 
There's no hidden secret agendas. We're all just going to democratically vote on how things are going to go, right? (laughs) Or is that a huge ruse and people are brainwashed through subversive propaganda and a passive oppression in order to rule over them and fulfill secret agendas while the exoteric is always being played as something completely different from what's actually going on behind the scenes. And so thus, were these dark ages where these rulers were much more upfront about things, well, was that actually better for the populace? We'll leave that for you to decide. But of course, is the term itself, the Enlightenment, actually part of the propaganda or that is put in contrast to the Dark Ages, which is supposed to be really awful and bad. So the fundamental point here that we are trying to express is that did this age of secrecy and Jewish Kabbalah and all of this activity that is starting to make its way into certain Christian aristocracies, and is this what led to the Enlightenment and the creation of Masonic occult secret societies of a similar ilk? And reading Barwell's memoirs, we know that the esoteric degrees of Freemasonry really reflected a lot of this Kabbalistic quote-unquote wisdom tied to this pantheism of Jehovah being the deity, and that was what was taught in these higher mysteries of the occult Masonic degrees and tied to the Knights Templar mystique that we talked about in those P2BP episodes on Barwell's memoirs particularly hour two of the first one. And then lastly, I would say that the book demonstrates, although it doesn't overtly say it, that there seems to be an element of war profiteering going on behind the scenes and then supplying weapons to each side at different points throughout history. And one of the more interesting ones is the Venetians and their vendetta against the Ottomans. And so this is sort of like Italian mafia stuff going on where some of these esoteric Jews are supplying them with poisons and even going and helping to carry out assassinations themselves for the Venetians against their selected targets in the Ottoman Empire. And apparently there's also sort of a primitive chemical warfare being developed behind the scenes of which many of these occult Jews are participating in. And then later on, the wars between Catholics and Protestants, there is certainly money being made behind the scenes to profit off of those wars. And probably most interestingly enough, the book reveals that there was a lot of involvements in weapons manufacturing coming from these esoteric Jews and their secrets just before the Reformation. And so once the Reformation broke out, all of those weapons were able to be used during those conflicts. So think about the timeline again. We have Byzantium falling, and we have all of that esoteric knowledge that was preserved there, and then all of that Gnostic, Neoplatonic-type stuff gets imported into the West and quote-unquote sparks the Renaissance, and quote-unquote illuminates the Dark Ages Europe into all of this esoteric wisdom. And we also have the Jews who are working with those courts who are succumbing to this. And then we have things like the debauchery and perhaps some of the usury creeping in with the Medicis and the Renaissance papacy. And then you have a Protestant reaction to that, and that splits off into this whole different thing, and there's all these problems. But again, remember, is it perhaps the counter-reformation that was really the true reformation and that carried on the tradition, whereas the Protestant nations morphed into the dissenters who morphed into Freemasonry, who fully embraced all of this esoteric wisdom and quote-unquote liberated all Europe through the Enlightenment, and that actually perhaps caused a lot more problems, one might argue. But also think about the John Dee tradition and how they were able to flourish with their magical ideas in Protestant countries and avoid persecution much more than in the counter-reformation Catholic countries. And that's something we'll again talk about when we get to the podcast summarizing John Dee and his magical endeavors. So with all those broad strokes outlined and the main themes of the book summarized, Let's start going into some more specific examples to demonstrate. 
So early on in the first chapter, Yuta makes the point that there is an archetypal overlap with Masonic lodges and their secrecy and their quest for divine illumination. And a sort of primitive example of this is given in the Magus Giovanni Battista della Porta, who was born in 1535 and died in 1615. And he established an Academy of Secrets, of which the author relates to an informal salon like in the French Revolution. And during this time, the universities were seen as the center for knowledge, and there wasn't anything super secret about it. Everybody was partaking and learning, and it was very exoteric. And so with the development of the printing press, and also some of these ideas of occult wisdom being interwoven with that, you have this sort of alternative underground academia, so to speak. And you can see how that might start to undermine the university, where everybody's talking about this hidden wisdom that all these people don't know, they haven't figured out yet, and so you can be off in secret studying these things on your own time, and usually these people will kind of go back and forth between academia and this underground circuit of secrets. And ironically, our modern academic tradition, which stems from this esoteric knowledge, but of course the Royal Society tried to purge a lot of that mystical element from it, and then it became what we know as modern science and academia, which will try to tell you that you can't take anything seriously unless it's contained within academia. So isn't it ironic that the very tradition that went underground and started this whole idea of an alternative education sparked those ideas in transmuting the Middle Ages university into the modern one that tells you you can't get any quote-unquote gnosis outside of academia. I just find that to be an interesting irony and perhaps... If you want to say it more crudely, a hypocrisy or a contradiction. And another note that Yuta makes on this work is that he's not necessarily focusing on the secrets themselves, but rather the mystique around them and how the idea is used to shape perception and apply it to all of these other facets of society, like we talked about technology, espionage, war etc. And within these secrets being sort of infused into manufacturing and business ventures, you start to see this sort of primitive capitalism forming. And the gist of it is that a lot of these secrets, even with the printing press and them being available in the open, well, they weren't going to be understood by the quote-unquote profane or the average Joe reading them. And so therefore this idea that the printing press would nullify all the secrets and put everything out in the open, you still have to have the knowledge and all of the resources to produce them. So one of the examples that's given is the innovation of a water-driven silk mill. And there's also examples from that Della Porta fellow we previously mentioned, who in his esoteric documents had designs and manuals for the manufacturing of astronomical and mathematical instruments. And so what's interesting is that when people manufacture these instruments on the basis of these texts, they were usually not actually adequate for what they said that they would be able to do or accomplish. So you think that would be in the realm of fraud or upsetting people who are buying these things, but apparently it had the opposite effect where it sparked an interest to produce higher value products and it generated an increasing demand for craft manufactured instruments in general. And so some of these books apparently included information about local manufacturers and so I guess the idea is that people would buy these secrets and then they'd find somebody to go and try to make the thing based upon the design and also apparently a lot of these secrets only describe things vaguely and subtly hinted that maybe there was another hidden secret that is outside of these texts in a more oral tradition, and so they might seek out the author, and they might give them some more hidden knowledge behind the scenes through word of mouth. But the point is, it's really just a marketing tactic, right? You have this idea of secrecy, hidden knowledge, future technology, 
And that's all being interwoven in this to foment the manufacturing and competition of such things. And I think he sums it up nicely on page 15 where he states, In fact, it is unclear whether the broad masses were the primary target for the secret literature in the first place. For professors of secrets could gain income from the sale of their books, but really the lucrative business came only when the publication led to a patronage relationship, especially at the courts of the nobility. So to a considerable degree, the secret literature functioned as a vehicle for self-fashioning or branding as an advertising strategy for its authors. So in other words, it's all about hype, and hopefully you get a wealthy backer to give you some sustenance and participation in a particular project and patronage. And the distribution of your esoteric book was more of a means for that end rather than just book sales itself. So essentially, you're selling yourself as having a lot of mystique, and then you're linking different manufacturers who can produce the ideas that you are sort of throwing out into the ether in a broad sense, and you just want to get the credit for it where everybody else is probably going to be doing the work. That seems to be what's going on here. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what he's saying, but... Again, is this the magic of marketing and advertising? And then it foments competition, and you are just trying to benefit off of that. And is this really tied to the capitalist spirit or understanding? I'm not an expert on economics by any stretch, but from what I understand, capitalism and competition are intrinsically linked to each other, and that market competition is basically at the heart of the capitalist system, the driving force for creative innovation and you see that all being utilized here by these occult secrets and giving the buzz of secret stuff and secret knowledge when you're just trying to get the rich people to back you and you find the proper manufacturer and they actually improve upon the ideas and create them and do all the actual work and you're just sort of piggybacking and playing this occult middleman, so to speak. At least that's what it seems to be to me related to all of this. And so to summarize, Utah states... Most of the early modern strategies for secrecy contradict today's ideal of science as an open form of knowledge production. And moreover, only a minority of society has the leisure, knowledge, and money to closely follow the production of scientific knowledge. And he even relates this to Jewish history itself, whereas they had to be much more esoteric about things back then, and then as the modern world came about and everything's deemed to be more open, and they were basically able to benefit or mimic this, and he also explains again the irony that we pointed out earlier, where nowadays anything esoteric or alternative is completely rejected, whereas back then it was all the rage. And it was also intertwined with a lot of the New Age woo-woo type stuff, that was tied to this scientific innovation, where now we purge all of those things that are deemed woo-woo or new age, but they actually came from this esoteric tradition, if you can see what I'm saying. So this is similar to Protestantism and Freemasonry. Once Freemasonry evolved out of Protestantism, it will always talk about Protestants having this great spirit of progress and freedom and evolution, but we have now purged the superstitious elements of it that it was tied to the old world and religion and all that kind of stuff, right? So the point is, this is the Ouroboros serpent devouring its previous incarnation and adopting what it likes out of it and purging anything that is tied to the old Catholic Dark Ages. And so this is very similar to the roots of modern science. It wants to purge the John Dees or the Jack Parsons. And then during this time, there starts to become more of an emphasis or fascination on symbolism, right? Like masonry. And everybody is sort of mystified by emblems and logos and all that sort of thing. And we have that all built into modern capitalism and the creation of advertising, using archetypes, using branding and symbols. This all seems to be primitively starting during this time where he states, The boom in emblems, with their often enigmatic combinations of words and pictures, is just one example of this. 
And of course, this happens in the alt media today, where there's a lot of obsession over Illuminati symbols, but without much description or distinction as to what they might mean, what their origins are, and how you might interpret them, or how the people creating them might interpret them, varying upon which philosophies they adhere to. And then also during this time, there's more of a shift to the idea of the beatific vision and a heavenly afterlife of which we prepare for in this lifetime and we have struggles and strife that will be there and we must labor but part of that labor is to go through the Catholic process of initiation into the sacraments and that prepares you for heavenly union whereas this is the time period where it started becoming more focused on an earthly beatific vision of God and thus considering magic and other divinatory practices as a way to attain a higher kind of knowledge that would give you insights into nature and to bring about better technology to create this beatific vision. So this is similar to Kabbalah, where we participate with God in our own quote-unquote salvation or fixing a broken creation and that is tied to a means of technological salvation and material goodness and happiness, and basically the spirit of the Enlightenment. And Yuta admits this, where he says this widespread view, even in Enlightenment circles, was part of the secret that was absolutely the only means to improving mankind and leading it into the kingdom of virtue and Enlightenment, and together with the very real need for secrecy occasioned by repression, this notion led to the establishment of enlightenment-minded secret societies, and that the formation and popularity of secret societies like the Freemasons, the Illuminati, and the Rosicrucians are cases in point. So the fundamental connection that is being made here is that Jewish Kabbalah and esoteric wisdom intermingling with the Christian aristocracy produced the enlightenment and all of the things that led up to it. And, of course, this is all at the expense of the old world model and the Middle Ages that was much less focused on secrecy and more about being upfront with your agendas, especially as the leader of a nation. And can we really complain about that, even if there are some things attached to the Middle Ages that aren't so attractive to us in the modern world? Perhaps that upfrontness would be much more appreciated and also perhaps the detachment from the capitalism and marketing that is all being fomented by this esoteric revolution, so to speak. And that is playing a prominent role in how our leaders today think and act and their hidden agendas tied to corporate backing and their influence. And this is even mentioned in the book here where the Renaissance sparked the idea of the state having secrets that it must maintain in order to uphold its society. And he gives an example of a Calvinist political theorist named Arnold Klepmerius, born in 1574, died in 1604. So this is right around the time of the Reformation. And apparently he is going to use the justification of secrecy and concealing things as a means of maintaining the state. And that was his definition of the Arcana Imperii, which is a concept derived from Tacitus, who was an ancient Roman writer, historian, and political theorist. And so thus this Calvinist political theorist thought that the state had to create secret structures to acquire secret knowledge and apply secret measures in order to ensure its capacity to act. And that this process of the arcanization of political action was actually happening all over Europe. And isn't it ironic that this all leads to the Enlightenment, which is essentially revering all of the pagan civilizations and philosophers before Christianity took over and imposed its superstitious dark ages on everyone. And of course, we have a Calvinist here who is trying to give the power over to the state and allowing secrecy. So the point is, thanks to all of this occult Neoplatonism and Renaissance magic and whatever shades you want to go with that into the naturalism or the supernatural entity invocation, Regardless, the result seems to be the Enlightenment principles and everything we adhere to today. 
So once again, if you're going to bash the old world Catholic Church as being part of the problem, yet complain about all of the new world order woes today that come from the Enlightenment, well, there's kind of an issue there because all of that stuff is getting people to shift their ideas and thinking towards the secrecy to preserve the state, i.e. the state being God. And of course, if you have esoteric Jews here intermingling, trying to foment this to happen, well, there's another layer of the New World Order onion that you might want to consider. And we would re-emphasize that none of this was present for the most part in the height of Catholic Empire in the Middle to High Middle Ages, at least according to the author. And the secrecy that was tied to the Inquisition was a religious agenda to snuff out heresies and not keep all of these esoteric secrets of state agendas. The agenda is to bring people to Christ and to the heavenly afterlife, and this is confirmed in Peter Wilson's book, The Holy Roman Empire, A Thousand Years of Europe's History, and this is found on the very first pages of the opening chapter, and I think it's worth reading this here just to prove the point. Of Christian Rome, he states, After more than three centuries of persecuting Christians, Rome adopted Christianity as its sole official religion in 391 AD, and we know that Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 greatly advanced this as well. And he states, this step partially desacralized the imperial office since the singular Christian God would not tolerate a rival, the jealous God, right? The emperor no longer considered himself divine and he had to accept the church's development as a separate institution throughout his empire. Now, this was a struggle and didn't always happen, but this is the set intention or ideal and generally speaking, it worked. These changes were eased by the church's adoption of the clerical hierarchy modeled on the Roman imperial infrastructure, and Christian bishops resided in the chief towns exercising spiritual jurisdictions or dioceses that generally matched the political boundaries of the empire's provinces. So this is the unification of church and state with the principles of God and Christ driving it and now the function of the state is to enforce those principles in terms of the morals and faith and the ideology that's protected and then all of the temporal disputes like economics and trade and all of those functions of the state that should stay within the distinct national borders and districts as long as they're not violating the ecclesiastical laws against usury well that is where they rule over as long as the other things are protected at least, that's what it is to my knowledge. And continuing, Wilson states, Moreover, though no longer considered a god, the emperor retained a sacral role as a mediator between heaven and earth. The Pax Romanum remained an imperial mission, but changed from providing an earthly paradise, which is what you see all of this Kabbalah and occultism trying to provide, to advancing Christianity as the sole path to salvation. So there is a sacred duty of the king. There's something God-ordained about him, but he has an office or a mission to fulfill that duty. He is not a divine person in and of himself. It's that his role is divinely ordained, and it's to advance Christianity and to help protect the clergy whose mission is to bring souls to salvation and ultimately a heavenly reality, not a temporal one, despite having to engage in temporal functions and deal with that unification of spirit and matter. And again, the point with all of this age of secrecy occultism is that this is reversing it back to the old pagan way where the state and the emperor were God, and the God of the Christians is just one God amongst the many, right? The synchronicity of religion of those ancient Hellenistic and Roman cultures. And that's exactly what Freemasonry is bringing back and Protestant Calvinists like this Arnold Clapimerius, whom we previously mentioned. And then Jutta goes on to mention Machiavelli and the idea of the Arcana Imperii and the secrets of the state and that there was a controversial Jesuit trying to promote this. 
And yes, there were some sketchy Jesuits, but we fleshed all of that out in the episode on Ignatius of Loyola. And the one that was promoting this was Balthazar Gracian. And apparently the Society of Jesus was not a big fan of him because he was repeatedly publishing things without their permission and defying his superiors. So despite this one Machiavellian-type Jesuit and the other minority of figures within the Jesuits like him, the Society of Jesus was actually one of the factions most opposed to these ideas back during this time in the Counter-Reformation. And it's an irony that they are always accused of having the ends justifying the means doctrines and promoting pragmatic lying and stuff like that. But like we demonstrated in Barwell's memoirs, the Bavarian Illuminati had ends justified the means type doctrines themselves, but then they engaged in the scapegoat ritual and blamed all of that on the Jesuits. And of course, we know that they hated the Jesuits, wanted nothing to do with them, and they were their mortal enemies, and they were telling their members of the Bavarian Illuminati to avoid them like the plague. And to further illustrate this point, let's read a quick passage from the book Jesuit Philosophy on the Eve of Modernity by Cristiano Casalini, and this is taken from page 227, and I think it sums it up quite nicely. So there were particular Jesuits who were dealing with Machiavellian-type doctrines, specifically the Jesuit Ribadeneira. And he and others, like him, devoted a great deal of energy to distinguishing between the two kinds of reason of state, a good and a bad one, and the bad one being the Machiavellian one tied to all of these esoteric secrets like we're talking about here. And the Jesuits, moreover, would even incur the odium of Machiavellianism on themselves because of the perception, keyword that they lusted for wealth, power, and the favor of the great in order to attain a brighter glory for the society. So the perception that the Jesuits were greedy, power-hungry, and just wanted a bunch of wealth and to rule the world, and that they wrote Machiavellian-type doctrines to justify all of this, well, we know that's been promoted by all kinds of people. And we talked about it in relationship to Napoleon and his regime. And of course, Napoleon wasn't power-hungry at all. It was the Jesuits. And then we have a lot of the Protestant accusations. We have the Masonic or Theosophical ones coming from the Blavatskys or the Pikes. And of course, all of the Enlightenment usurpers of Christianity in Voltaire and his conspiring philosophes such as D'Alembert. The Duke of Choiseul and going into some of the content we talked about with Marquis de Pombal and the suppression of the Jesuits. So these are all the perceptions, but the reality of it is that they were writing against Machiavellian-type ideas tied to all of this esoteric secrecy that these occult Jews and these apostate Jesuits and some of these Protestants are promoting. And continuing, notwithstanding manifold individual differences, the anti-Machiavellian character and promotion of an active life in harmony with the Christian virtues became the dominant aim of the Europe-wide Jesuit movement. So the Jesuits were promoting active virtue and not being Machiavellian-like in their ways of dealing with the state and spreading Christianity and their aims and objectives. And the author even mentions that this is reaffirmed in the Jesuit Robert Bellarmine's writings, and that the way the Jesuits defined the quote-unquote reason of the state was very different, where they stressed for the need of a vigorous government in which the typical Jesuit attitude of obedience of the subjects towards their superior was acknowledged and institutionalized, but it was founded upon the genuine practice of virtuousness. And contrary to Machiavelli, the Jesuits denied that virtues could be feigned, right? You can't fake virtue and just talk a big game about it and not actually back it up, because then you would no longer be virtuous if it was only a shadow of virtue, meaning that the appearance of virtuousness was never enough to establish an enduring reputation. You need the works, the actions to go with it, 
It's not faith alone. It's not virtue alone. It's not reason alone. There are actions that have to match all of that virtue and not just talking about it or pretending like you can never have any of it and that Christ has covered it all for you and you can continue on not worrying about it. These are all the disconnects or dialectics, right? If we have a Protestant doctrine of faith alone, and that evolves into a Masonic doctrine of reason alone. But Catholicism is saying that faith and reason can go together just like faith and works and virtue backed up by it. And that can only be based upon the reality of how you engage with people, not pretending to be virtuous for a bunch of people to try to gain some objective. And that's what we were talking about in Barwell's memoirs, where a lot of these Masonic deist philosophers are saying that virtue is only pragmatic. People are only virtuous because they just want to get an objective. And if we can just admit that, then we'll all be a lot better off because there's no such thing as actual Christian virtue. It's all pragmatism. And that was according to the Freemason Helvetius, of whom Voltaire was very happy with getting him into the academy with all of his other philosophes to subvert the Catholic order. And, of course, to conspire in secrecy, no less, to get the Jesuits expelled from France. But here we have the Jesuits saying that you can't just appear to be virtuous. You can't just talk about it. You actually have to live like that, and that is what your reputation should be built upon. And those are the types of things that you should be obedient to, the people who are actually virtuous. And those should be the ones leading, ideally, not just talking a big game about it to fulfill a secret esoteric agenda. And then later on in the book, they talk about the Jesuits trying to transmute Tacitus to bring about this more proper understanding of things rather than the Machiavellian understanding. So this is the quote-unquote Catholic alchemy, as you might call it. And so before we wrap up from this book, let's go to a couple footnotes they provide that I think are important. And one note is that not everyone was as enthusiastic about Tacitus in the Jesuits because he was a pagan who did not like the Christians, and he sounded a lot like the Enlightenment philosophes when he made comments about them being tied to superstitious religion, and that the Jesuit we previously mentioned, Ribadeneira, wasn't exactly thrilled about people bringing up Tacitus in regards to all of these matters. But despite all of this, during the 17th century, the Machiavellian Jesuit was something of a cliché, but the reality is that the most ardent adversaries of Machiavelli were the Jesuits, whose, quote, aggressive anti-Machiavellianism became virtually the society's official doctrine. So the point being, don't blame the Jesuits for the ends justify the means crap. It has nothing to do with what they were promoting, despite a few apostates or people not doing such a great job of adhering to it. Whereas the Bavarian Illuminati actually promoted these ideas in their own secret writings of which were found out by the Bavarian Catholic police and exposed, not to mention everything exposed by Barwell the Jesuit on the occult doctrines of the Freemasons and all of the writings of the Enlightenment philosophes who are acting very Machiavellian in their own right. So to wrap up the first hour here, we outlined everything that's so important about what this book reveals, that there is a Jewish Kabbalistic element in fomenting all of this type of thinking that brought about the Enlightenment and has basically led to all of the things that we adhere to today in our political pragmatism and liberal democracy. And not to mention our obsession with technology as a means to salvation and also the capitalist mindset and all of the magic that goes on in tricking you into buying crap you don't need. And in the next hour, we'll get into more of the fun stuff surrounding things like palm reading or what's called chiromancy. We'll get into all of the new age fraud surrounding unicorns. We'll talk about cryptography related to Kabbalah and Gematria and some of the espionage and gun running, so to speak, and Talmudic wisdom tied to herbs, stones, amulets, talismans, and potions, and poisons. 
And more importantly, for Christians who were interested in occultism and magic and all of this Kabbalistic mysticism, if you were a Jew, you were actually given more credibility and were specifically sought out for these secrets rather than in the Catholic tradition that says there's stuff in the Talmud that is not going to be very nice towards Christians and perhaps you should be a bit more cautious when involved in some of these endeavors with those in the Jewish community, especially coming from the esoteric background. And Yuta points out that despite this stereotype, it doesn't necessarily mean that occult Jews had any more esoteric knowledge than occult Christians. It's just the mystique of it all kept fomenting all of these ideas and it snowballed into quote-unquote enlightenment, which threw off the shackles of the church and brought us the modern world that we have today, for better or for worse. So if you're a subscriber, we'll see you in the next hour for all of the magical madness. To gain access to the second hour, head to www.rockstaresoterica.com and become a member to gain all access to all content at all times. Or to purchase individual episodes such as this one, head to schism206.podbean.com.